We're kicking off a brand new series of messages called Games We Play. There's a real interesting passage of scripture in Luke's gospel, chapter 7, where Jesus is addressing some of the religious leaders of the day. And here's what he says in verse 31 and 32. He says, to what can I compare the people of this generation? How can I describe them, Jesus says? They are like children playing a game in the public square. Now, the context that this comes out of is the fact that, on the one hand, the religious leaders of the day could not stand John the Baptist because of the way he did things. But Jesus and his ministry actually did things very differently than John, but they were critical of him as well. They hated Jesus and John the Baptist, and Jesus just calls them out on it here. And he says, really, what this all comes down to is you're just playing games. Now, before we're too quick to judge those religious leaders of that day, we got to do a little self-inventory, and we got to ask ourselves, how serious are we about the aspects of our own life that is most important? Are we ourselves just kind of playing games when it comes to God, when it comes to vital relationships in our life? Are we in a situation where we're just playing games? Because one of the greatest hindrances to a healthy relationship with God or a healthy relationship with one another really comes down to the games we play. Now, y'all adjust your halo. Y'all are looking at me like you never play these games, but I think all of us know we play head games, we play heart games, and we tend to kind of manipulate one another with these games that we play. There's a passage in Romans chapter seven where Paul is kind of just pouring out his soul, and I can relate so much to what Paul describes here, he says in Romans chapter seven, verse 18, I know that my selfish desires won't let me do anything that's good. Even when I want to do right, I cannot. Instead of doing what I know is right, I do wrong. And so I don't do what I know is right. And I'm no longer the one doing these evil things. The sin that lives in me is what does them. I think what Paul's really getting down to here is I've been playing games and it's gotta stop. And today I want to challenge us all to do the same. One of the main reasons why we shouldn't be game players is because Satan is one who loves to play games. And his favorite game is Twister. How many of you guys remember that old game? Well, the truth is whether or not you ever played the home version of the game Twister or not, many of us have been playing Twister with one another and we, we kind of twist one another's arms uh, in different ways. We kind of twist our ideas about things around. Uh, we kind of twist our expectations toward one another. And really and truly, when we're supposed to be like Christ, unfortunately, many times we're more like the devil. Wow. Have a great day. Thanks for coming. No, no, no. I've got more to say. So Satan loves to play twister. And in fact, he is very skilled at the game. His very first interaction with mankind, he pulls out that game. And he plays Twister with Adam and Eve. Of course, you know the story there in the book of Genesis where God had created this man, Adam, and created his wife, Eve. And he puts them in a lush garden where he provides for their every need. And he says, listen, you can partake of every fruit, of every tree except one. There's one tree that I don't want you partaking the fruit of. It's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And you cannot partake of that fruit because the day you partake of that fruit, you will die. And all of a sudden, one day, 
the enemy decides to play twister with this man and with this woman. And let's take up the narrative in Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, where the scripture says, The serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, now get the picture here. There's a snake, which I hate snakes. Anybody else in here? I hate snakes. So there's a snake who strikes up a conversation with the woman, and he says this, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Well, the first, first of all, it's not what he said. He said you, you can't eat from the tree of good and evil. But here's Satan playing twister, and he's twisting what God says, and he's twisting it in such a way that he wants Eve to doubt the word of the Lord. Can I just tell you that Satan would love nothing better than to cause you to doubt God's word. He wants to plant doubt. He wants to plant questions in your mind about God, about God's word, about what God's word declares. And in fact, let me just say, the unraveling of the American culture as we've known it, and I've seen it unravel right before my eyes. Over the decades that I've been alive, I've watched us move from the land of the free, the home of the brave, the bright light sitting on a, a, a hill, right? I, I've seen that crumble all around us because we've been playing twister with the enemy. We've allowed him to twist things in such a way where we no longer trust God. We no longer believe in what God's word teaches. We no longer align ourselves with what the word of God demands of us. But on the contrary, we lay it aside. We forsake it. And we just go after what we want, what Satan wants for us, what the world demands of us. And all of a sudden, we're playing twister with the enemy. Again, let me just state this. Satan's main objective, his main objective is to get you to doubt God's word. So he did it with the first Adam, but it didn't succeed when he tried it with the second Adam. And I love that the New Testament calls Jesus the second Adam. It's, it's God's way of kind of uh, rebooting the human experience by sending his own son in human form. And that second Adam, Jesus, comes to our planet and Satan decides he's going to play twister with him. Let's take up reading in Matthew chapter 4. In verse 5, the devil took Jesus to the holy city, Jerusalem, to the highest point of the temple and said, if you're the son of God, jump off. For the scriptures say, now notice, the devil's quoting the Bible. Y'all didn't know he could do that, huh? Really, he's misquoting the Bible. And here's what he says. Um, he says, the scriptures say, God will order his angels to protect you, and they will hold you up with their hands so that you won't even hurt your foot on a stone. But if you know the narrative, if you know the story, you know that Jesus rebuked Satan. He put Satan in his place. He refused to play twister with him. And he took the authority of God's word and he challenged the enemy that was trying to tempt him. And the enemy finally had to leave. And the same will be true for you and I if we just simply employ the same measures. The Bible said, submit yourself to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. That can happen or you can get all caught up, all twisted up in a game of Satan manipulating you and what you believe about God and what God has said. Let me just say that some of, greatest, some of Satan's greatest accomplishments, if you could call it that, some of his greatest accomplishments have been achieved through twisted scriptures. Somebody say that, twisted scriptures. Sounds like a bad Christian rock group, doesn't it? Uh, twisted scriptures. He uses the word of God 
in a twisted form where he takes it out of context and he uses it religiously within our life to get us to believe things we shouldn't believe or not believe things we should believe. And he twists the scripture. He plays a game of twister with us. We saw it happen towards the end of last year on social media. Unfortunately, it was members of the body of Christ, well-recognized members of the body of Christ, actually in ministry that were engaged in it and involved in it. John MacArthur, a great Bible teacher in his own right, was asked a question at a conference about Beth Moore, another amazing Bible teacher. John MacArthur was asked, if you had two words to say to Beth Moore, what would you say? And here was the two words John chose, go home. And he began to take scripture twisted out of context and use it as a platform to declare that women have no right to be in ministry, completely ignoring the reality that God's used women ever since the world was formed, Old Testament, New Testament alike, that God has gifted women in the body of Christ to do great things for him. And today, I just wanna set the record straight and I want you to know we recognize God's hand, God's gifting, God's anointing on people like Beth Moore, people like Lisa Bevere, and many of you as ladies here in our church family that God has gifted you to teach and preach and do ministry. We applaud what God is doing through you. Don't you let the enemy stop what God wants to do simply by pulling out that twister board and getting you all messed up. So we see that Satan plays twister, but if we're gonna be honest, we play twister as well. And here's the unfortunate thing about that. When we start playing those games with one another, head games, heart games, I want you to hear what Jesus says in John chapter eight and verse 44. He says, you're children of your father, the devil. Don't you love that Jesus just doesn't really mix words, does he? He said, you're children of your father, the devil, and you love to do the evil things he does. He was a murderer from the beginning. He's always hated the truth because there's no truth in him. When he lies, he's consistent with his character for he's a liar and the father of lies. And here we are as believers in Jesus and we're supposed to be like God, but sometimes we look a lot more like God's enemy than we look like God himself. And that's got to change. Church, that's got to change. We've got to stop playing these games. Let me take a few moments. Let me just kind of open up the box and just show you how we play Twister with one another and with God sometimes. First of all, let me point out that we play the guilt game. The guilt game is one of the forms that Twister takes on relationally uh, between us. The guilt game, you know what I'm talking about. Holding something that someone did over their head for a lifetime, simply as a means of manipulating them. Can I tell you, that kind of behavior is satanic in nature. I'm calling on you right now, and you know, if you're playing that game, you know it, and I'm calling on you to cut it out. God said, stop playing that game, where we take and hold something that someone did maybe years ago, and we're still holding it over their head so we can manipulate them into doing what we want them to do. I'll say it again, it's satanic in nature. Listen to Colossians chapter three and verse 13. The Bible tells us this is the way we should posture ourselves in one another's lives. He said, make allowance for each other's faults. We've all got them. He says, make allowance for one another's faults. He says, forgive anyone who offends you. Remember, the Lord forgave you, so you must forgive others. 
I'd love to see the hand of everybody God's forgiven. Come on, if you've been forgiven, raise your hand. Then if your hand is raised right now, you have no choice but to forgive the people that have done you wrong. Because you must forgive in light of what you've been forgiven of. In fact, one of the amazing parables of Jesus, and I love how Jesus would always have these stories to help us get our heart around the things that he was trying to teach us. One of his stories that he shared there in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 18, was a story of two men that owed another man a sum of money. On the one hand, you had a guy who owed his master the equivalent in today's economy of around a million dollars. And he was forgiven of that debt. Come on, somebody, that's a huge forgive, right? But the guy forgiven of a million-dollar debt goes right out and finds someone who owes owes him, in today's economy, the equivalent of about $190. And he throws him in debtor's prison because he can't repay him. And when the master that forgave him the million-dollar debt finds out what he's done to the person that owed him just 190 bucks, he takes him and he throws him in debtor's prison. And Jesus uses an example of this analogy and lets us know we must be willing to forgive the little $190 debts we owe each other in light of the million-dollar debt God has forgiven us of. Come on, somebody. How do we play Twister? Number one, the guilt game. Number two, the categorizations game. Oh, I see you've heard of it. (laughs) Maybe you've played it. Maybe just this last week, you pulled that game out of the game closet and you played it with someone that you love. You know you're playing the categorizations game when, when your summary in anger that you're making of the person standing in front of you or on the other end of the line on your phone call starts with words like these, you always, dot, dot, dot. Or you never, dot, dot, dot. And all of a sudden, you're categorizing someone, yes, who's made a mistake, yes, who's failed you in some way, but now you're acting as though that's who they are versus just what they've done. You're, you're categorizing them over what they did in a moment of weakness, a moment maybe of, of indiscretion or, or even desperation, and all of a sudden you're gonna tag them as that? That's who they are to you now? Instead of recognizing that it was just for a moment, and if you would take a moment, you would remember you've had some failure in your life as well. There's been times when you didn't do everything right either. Come on, adjust the halo for me. Because some of y'all are like wondering, Wish he'd have preached that down the road at that other church. (laughs) Can I just ask you a question? That question comes right out of the book of Malachi, chapter 2 and verse 10. Do we not all have one father? Has not one God created us? Why do we deal treacherously, faithlessly against each other? so as to profane the covenant. Did you hear what you do when you play the game of categorization? You profane the covenant. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse seven, tells us how things ought to be between us. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the apostle Paul has been inspired by the Holy Spirit to describe love for us, so we know what love is supposed to look like in our relationships with one another. And he describes it this way in 1 Corinthians 13, verse seven, love believes the best. I said, love believes the best. Love refuses to categorize someone by their worst mistake on their worst day. 
Love recognizes. That might have been what you did, but that's not who you are. And so I'm not gonna write you off because I don't wanna be written off. Come on, somebody. Matthew's gospel, chapter seven and verse two, Jesus warns us and he says, the standard you use in judging is the standard by which you'll be judged. Can I ask you this? Why do we judge others by their infractions and judge ourselves by our intentions? Somebody calls you on the carpet, well, I didn't mean to. Well, maybe they didn't mean to either. But we judge them by their infractions while we justify our own behavior by our best intentions. Come on. We don't need to be categorizing one another. It's a game of twister where nobody wins. Number three. What does twister look like in our own relationships? It looks like guilt. It looks like categorizations. Number three, it looks like comparisons. We play the comparison game. Let me just talk to married people here for just a minute. Hey, singles, don't check out on me because this one relates to you as well. I just have an observation for the married folks that I think we really need to wrap our heart around here today. When you stood at the altar and you swore before God, to love one another and honor one another. I don't know exactly what your vow stated, but probably they went something like this. Forsaking all others, I pledge my love to you alone. Now we get what that means. How many believe that's what marriage ought to look like? That when you're married and you go into a covenant with someone that, hey, it's just you and them now. There's no little playing around on the, on the side. Give me a better amen. Maybe I need to camp out here and preach on this a little while. Maybe I'll play in a different game. No, no, no. I pledge my love to you alone. Meaning, it's just you and me, baby, right? I'm not giving my love to somebody else. My love is pledged to you and you alone. Now, we understand that in a sexual context, but do you understand the same goes for your comparisons? I forsake all others. I refuse to hold somebody else up and point them out to help puts you in line of what I want you to be. And yet we play this game all the time. We play this game all the time. The truth is, the person you're comparing your spouse to, you probably don't even know them. Probably the only thing you know about them, you got off of Facebook. So you're comparing their highlight reel to your husband's Encyclopedia Britannica that you've got on him. That's not fair. Come on, church. I said, that's not fair. You don't want somebody doing that to you, and you shouldn't do that to one another. It's a game, again, where no one wins. The Bible said in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, and verse 12, whenever they measure themselves by their own standards or compare themselves among themselves, they show how foolish they are. Can we stop playing that foolish game? What's Twister look like? Looks like guilt. It looks like categorization. It looks like comparisons. Number four, it looks like dishonesty. Uh, It's not that you lied to them. You just didn't tell them the whole truth. And we play that game where we tell one another half-truths and we take misleading measures. Can I remind somebody today, Leviticus 19.11 still says, thou shalt not lie. He says, In Leviticus 19, verse 11, don't deceive one another. Here's the New Testament equivalent 
of that Old Testament passage, just in case you were trying to write that off as the law and the Old Testament. Listen to what Colossians chapter 3, verse 9 says. Don't lie to each other. You, you've gotten rid of the person you used to be and the life you used to live. In other words, you used to be a liar, but you're not a liar no more. Today, you've embraced truth, so refuse to play that game. Here's what happens. When we play the game of dishonesty, dishonesty undermines the most important aspect of our relations. What is it? It's trust. Everything about our relationships has to be built on trust. And the moment the foundation of our relationships, trust, begins to erode, everything we've built on it is going to come crumbling down. We've got to keep trust intact. And how do we do that? By being honest one another and refusing to play twister. And what we've seen so far is that Satan, man, he knows how to play a mean game of twister. Some of y'all feel very twisted up and manipulated by him right now. But we've also seen that sometimes, even as followers of Jesus, we look more like the devil than we do God. And that should not be so. We play twister with one another. But I got one last observation for you today. And that's simply this. God is capable of playing a righteous game of twister himself. Now, now, now hear me. He doesn't play twister like we do. He doesn't play twister certainly like Satan does. When God gets the game out, he plays the game in a righteous way. In a way that works towards our good and his glory. And he is fully capable of twisting what's been happening in your life that is destructive. He's fully capable of twisting what's been happening that's causing your relationships to go sour and your well-being to kind of crumble down around you. He's fully able to twist that so that the tables are turned on your enemy and it works to your good and it works to his glory. I wonder if there's anybody in this house that's seen God play twister before. Uh, let, me, let, me, let me give you an Old Testament just kind of example of it. I love the Old Testament story of Joseph. He uh, was his father's favorite son and his brothers hated him for it. And so they sold him into slavery. He gets to Egypt, sold as a slave, and God still finds a way how to bless him, right? But then he lands in prison. Satan's doing everything he can to take Joseph out. He lands in prison. Even in prison, God finds a way to bless him. God gives him favor. Before it's over with, God's shown Joseph so much favor, he's second in command of all of Egypt, second only to Pharaoh himself. Now, if you know the story, you know famine is set in, and the nations around Egypt are now coming to Egypt, coming actually to Joseph because of the wisdom that he's used. He, he has resource from, for them and they're able to, to buy from him. And don't you know, the same brothers that sold him into slavery are now bowing before him. They don't even recognize him. They don't even recognize who he is. But I want you to hear what he says to them in Genesis chapter 50, somebody needs to get a hold of this. Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. Joseph says to his brothers that sold him into slavery, you tried to harm me, but God made it turn out for the best so that he could save all these people as he is now doing. You know what Joseph is saying? God pulled out the twister game and he turned the tables on the enemy and what the enemy meant for evil, God turned around for Joseph's good. And now, now listen. Right now, you're all twisted up inside. 
Right now, finances are, are twisted all out of proportion. And you need to know God is fully capable of turning the table on your enemy. Romans 8, 28 still says we know that God causes everything. In the Greek, the word everything means everything. He causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. I just had dinner with a new friend. My friends, Sean and uh, Tanya Johnson, they're here somewhere, I saw them earlier in service, introduced me to someone that I've admired for years, a great pastor in the New Orleans area that, that they know very well, and uh, we had dinner together, and they introduced us to um, Dennis Watson, who pastors Celebration Church in New Orleans. And Dennis was telling me at dinner the other night about how when Celebration was just one church, one campus there in the New Orleans area, they had an opportunity to buy a church that was failing and, and needed out of, of their, you know, of their financial responsibility. They were kind of closing up shop. And so uh, it was really too good of a deal for them to pass up. Just a little over a million dollars, they uh, were able to purchase this campus that was wor worth much more than that. And so they purchased it. They really didn't know what they were going to do about it, but they purchased it. Now they've got their campus they've been doing ministry on for years, and they've got this other campus, and all of a sudden Hurricane Katrina hits. And it wipes out the campus that they had been using all those years. But the campus they had just bought was sitting up there ready to be used. And they moved all the operations over. Not only did they get right back to doing ministry and reaching all those hurting people there in that area after that devastation, they also were able to open up new uh, types of ministry that could help those that had been affected so bad by those disasters. And, and here's the beautiful thing. When the insurance check came out, came, came in for the, for the campus that had been wrecked, don't you know, it was just enough money to pay off the other campus that they're now using to the, come on y'all. I'm telling you, God can turn the tables. God can play twister. I don't know what you're going through, but God is fully capable. Do you believe it? Say, I do. Let me share one more passage of scripture with you and I'll close. Isaiah chapter 59, verse 18. I'm gonna get Tracy to put it on the screen and just leave it there for just a moment. We're, most of us are familiar with this verse. When the enemy comes in like a flood, the spirit of the Lord will raise up a standard against him. It's a precious promise from God. In case you didn't know this, the Old Testament was actually written in the Hebrew language, and in the Hebrew, there is no punctuation. There is no punctuation. So when the translators translated from Hebrew over into the English language, they put the punctuation marks in at their own discretion. And most English Bibles reads just like the one I have here on the screen. When the enemy comes in, comma, the Spirit of the Lord will lift up a standard against him. But maybe the comma's in the wrong place. Maybe knowing God and his capability of playing twister like I do, maybe the comma needs to be moved. And maybe the verse needs to read like this. When the enemy comes in, comma, like a flood, the spirit of the Lord raises up a standard against, I'm telling you today, if God be for you, who can be against you? I'm telling you, God's got your back. I'm telling you, he's fully capable of rising and allowing his enemies to be scattered in your life. I don't know what you're going through. I don't know what you're facing. But I know God wants to turn the table on the enemy and play a little twister today.